All right. Uh, a couple of announcements. Just a reminder on the uh, trip to D.C. next next year. I've been working on a couple of things. I don't know. I can't tell you about them. They're going to be really exciting, but I don't want to get people's hopes up and think that, yes, it's definitely going to happen when it won't. And I've been talking to some people in Congress about doing some sort of congressional briefing, tour of the Capitol. That's a general idea. But um, the 19, I mean 19, 2018 congressional calendar is not out till the 1st of November. So they can't make any commitments until that calendar comes out. So that's all there is to it. So we're just going to wait. But there's a lot of exciting things that are, that are available to see. So uh, we have about a third of the rooms taken already. And so that leaves uh, uh, 20 rooms left. And, um, you know, it's first come, first serve. I think a lot of people are waiting. It seems like a long way off. Also, we're in the middle of uh, planning out the Israel trip. And the cost is going to, we'll have that information available. Once again, it depends upon how many people go on the trip. If it's under 12, then it's more. If it's over 30, then it's a lot less. So, and there's various breakdowns along the way. So we'll be publishing all that within the next couple of weeks. Also, uh, in preparation for fall events, in October, we have our men's annual campout. October 20th and 21st. So put that on your calendar in order to uh, be prepared for that event. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure they're spiritually prepared to study the word and to uh, learn what God has to teach us so that God the Holy Spirit can make that clear to us as we're studying the word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for confession of sin if necessary. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we can come together to meet as a body of believers. We thank you for the fellowship we have in Christ, that we fellowship in him. We fellowship around your word. Our primary fellowship is with you. And the byproduct of that is fellowship with one another that is always centered around what we have in Christ and who we are in Christ. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to guide and direct us, to teach us about that which is unseen and invisible, to help us to understand that that reality is more than that which we see in our experience and that which is uh, visible to the naked eye, but there is a spiritual dimension that is energized by Satan and the forces of darkness. And Father, we pray that we might uh, recognize that the scriptural command is to resist the devil, to humble ourselves in light uh, under your mighty hand, and to walk with you. And as long as we're walking with you, we have nothing to fear from anything. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand what we teach tonight. We make it clear in Christ's name. Amen.
All right, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 28, and I want to go through a quick review of what's going on up to this point. What we read at the beginning of 1 Samuel 28 is that there's no revelation that's been coming to Saul. There's a reason for that. Once God lowered the boom on him in divine discipline in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God has nothing more to say to, to Saul. And that's the end of it. But Saul is in a panic. Saul is like a lot of believers and a lot of unbelievers who think that religion is up to them and is not determined by by God. The truth is in Scripture that religion is always pictured poorly because religion is pictured as man's efforts to uh, do that which will gain God's approval, whereas Scripture says that there's nothing man can do to gain God's approval. God is the one who does everything. We simply accept it by faith, and God blesses us. Saul has rejected that. He's gone into a lot of different um, areas of disobedience that have been identified as rebellion, as witchcraft, as uh, uh, idolatry. And because he wants to worship God on his own terms, that is idolatry, even if he uses the right language. And we see that a lot today in a lot of ways in Christendom. There are many, many churches that talk biblical language, but their theology is heresy. And they are, in effect, have created their own view of God, and they're worshiping it. And that's the essence of idolatry. And if you stay in spiritual rebellion over a lengthy period of time, then there's going to be a, an implosion in your life, and self, a spiritual self-destruction, which is what we see depicted by Saul, because as we looked last time at his fear, he just goes into a complete panic because of the Philistine army that he has seen. And so he's seeking the solution uh, to gain God's revelation by going to a necromancer, a medium. So in verse 3 of this chapter, we're reminded that Samuel had died and also reminded that earlier Saul had put out the mediums and the spiritists. In other words, uh, God had quit speaking to Saul. That was part of his divine discipline. But we also learned that at an earlier time, Saul had been obedient to the Lord and he understood the commands of Scripture and he applied them. We saw the phrase mediums and spiritists as one that referred to different categories of these uh, occult practitioners. There are various words that we looked at that are used in the Old Testament, and it's difficult to define precisely the difference between each one. But these two words, the word for mediums, which is the word ove, and the word for spiritus, which is the word yudoni, that those two words are often linked in Scripture in quite a few passages. And so uh, we went through that, we went through those passages, and saw that Saul had previously understood the issue related to demonism and had followed the law. It's important to understand that Saul was a believer. Now, that is a view that most of you have heard. It's a view that I always heard. I was surprised uh, when I went to seminary that there are people who don't believe that. Usually, it's because they bring to the table certain false assumptions, usually assumptions related to what we call lordship salvation. Lordship salvation at its very core is the idea that if you are truly, genuinely, 
actually they always add adverbs scripture never add ad adds adverbs to believe it's just believe but they say if it's true belief genuine belief if you're uh, really a believer and you're saved then you will have a life that demonstrates that well how are you going to quantify that who or who is anybody to determine the difference between just sin nature produced morality and that which is produced by God the Holy Spirit. It always boils down to legalism. I believe that lordship salvation is a heresy and in the spiritual life their belief is that if you're truly saved you will inevitably automatically show spiritual growth. They deny the fact that it is volitional. They deny the fact that the command in Galatians 5.16 is to walk by means of the Spirit, and that is a command. It's volitional, which means that after I'm saved, I can say, no, I'm not going to walk by the Holy Spirit, in which case your life is going to look like an unbeliever. That's what Paul goes on to talk about there, and that was part of the problem uh, in, in Galatia. So... We have to understand that Paul, I mean, Saul was originally a believer. Third thing we saw was that idolatry is a form of demonism. In 1 Corinthians 10, 20, and 21, Paul says that when they sacrificed, these were the Greek pagans in the New Testament era, that when they sacrificed to idols, they were in fact sacrificing to the demons that were behind the false religions, that false religions are all energized by Satan and the demons. Second uh, Corinthians 14 talks about Satan going forth as a minister of righteousness, that he uh, is a counterfeiter. He uh, acts like he is an angel of light, and so people are duped by that. So idolatry is a form of demonism. So as Saul gets involved in this, it's just a manifestation of the fact that he is an idolater at heart. He has generated his own idea of God, what that God expects of obedience, and then he's doing it. That is a form of idolatry. Another form of idolatry that we see today is people, Christians especially, come along and they generate their own emotional idea of who Jesus is. And then they worship that emotional uh, product, and that's idolatry. You know, I would say that a huge number of Christians in today's world are, are emotional idolaters. They worship their emotions. They worship this emotional Jesus that they've generated. They worship a Jesus that is anything but the Jesus of the Bible, and that is idolatry. And that always opens people up to demonism, not necessarily demon possession, but certainly demon influence, which is always false thinking. So idolatry is a form of demonism. Fourth thing that we've seen is that the ultimate issue in this situation is divine guidance. It's direction. It is getting revelation from God. Saul is having a pity party. He's scared to death, and he wants God to tell him what to do and God won't talk to him. So he's going to do whatever he can do to try to manipulate the circumstances to get God or, or Samuel to talk to him. And we look at passages like Deuteronomy 18 and Deuteronomy 13, which are the key passages in the Old Testament that talk about the criteria for someone who claims to be a prophet, someone who is speaking for God, and that not just anybody can come along and say they're speaking for God. And when they do, what they say has to match what the scripture says. That's the ultimate criterion. It's not 
signs or wonders or miracles or any of the things that people think is important. If what someone says doesn't match the scripture, then they are teaching false doctrine. They are not whom they claim to be. And that was what was true in the Old, uh, in the Old Testament. So God not only tells us the content, he tells us the methodology, what to say, how to say it. It's both together. Fifth thing we looked at was background. Verse 4, the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped at Gilboa. These are two locations that we see on the map here. They are on opposite sides of the Jezreel Valley, which runs from northwest to southeast. It is a huge valley. It's also known as the Esdralon Valley and the Valley of the Mountain of Megiddo. In Hebrew, the Mountain of Megiddo or Mount Megiddo is Har Megiddo, which is where we get the term Armageddon. Megiddo is located here about halfway down the western side of the Jezreel Valley. So as Saul is up on Mount Gilboa looking down at this enormous encampment of Philistine soldiers, he is scared to death. And this is what we looked at last time in verses uh, 5 and also in uh, verse 15, that it scared him to death. His heart trembled greatly. He was distressed. All of these are terms saying that he's having his own little meltdown as he looks at uh, the Philistine army. He knows that he can't defeat them. God has deserted him. Samuel is dead. He doesn't have a clue uh, what to do. So we looked at the doctrine of fear last time, and we looked at the conclusion, which is that we are to trust God. We all have all kinds of fears and worries and anxieties. We're distressed about money. We're distressed about health. We're worried about our future. There's all kinds of things we worry about, and we're told in 1 Peter 5, 7 to cast our care on the Lord because he cares for us. And that is a great promise, and it summarizes so much that is taught in the Scripture. And we looked at a couple of verses from David, Psalm 56, 3 and 4, which was written by David when he was a captive by uh, the Philistines, uh, early on in his time in the wilderness, and he escaped to Achish in Gath, and he wrote this psalm, and he says, Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. At any moment, whenever fear comes, whenever that emotion starts to develop, what do we do? We shift gears in our mind, and we trust in God. Did God know I was going to go through this? Billions and billions of years ago in eternity past, God knew every single thing that you're going to go through. And God made a provision for it. God is not surprised at all. So God knows everything in his omniscience. Second, in his omnipotence, he's more powerful than any circumstance we're ever going to encounter. He has made provision so that we can go through that crisis and have peace and stability and tranquility even in the midst of it. So we've talked about his omniscience. We've talked about his omnipotence. And that tells us that God can handle the entire situation. And because God is omnipresent, he is always with us. In fact, in a special way, different from that in the Old Testament, Jesus said to his disciples, I am 
on the other side of the world paying attention to what's going on in Afghanistan and I don't know what's going on in your life. Is that what he said? No, he said, I am with you always. Always doesn't leave anything out. So we can trust in God. David said, in God, I will praise his word. That's how we know what God can do. We know his word. It, we've studied it. We've read it. We've learned it. It's in our soul. He says, in God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh, what can man do to me? You can't come up with one issue that God can't handle. He knew it all. Psalm 91, 4 and 5, he shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. So he uses a zoomorphic image of an eagle or even a chicken, a mother hen protecting her young with his wings, uh, has the idea of truth being a shield and buckler. The truth, it's the truth of God's word. Jesus said, said, prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. It's because it's true, it protects us. We have to live in the realm of reality. The result is we shouldn't be afraid of the terror by night or the arrow that flies in the day. That's a great promise to memorize. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night nor the arrow that flies by day. So then Saul inquired of the Lord. We're told he had inquired of the Lord. But the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or by the prophets. God had shut down. God is silent. So what Dave, I mean, what Saul is going to do is he's going to, you know, God's not going to talk to me. I'm going to make him talk to me. I'm going to call up Samuel. We're going to, we're going to go through a wrong method to do this. And so we saw under point seven that wrong methodology is also idolatry. Now, this is something that is missed a lot today because a lot of Christians think that a right thing can be done a wrong way. You have evangelism that's done a wrong way. You have apologetics that's done a wrong way. You have the practice of, of Christian psychology, which is basically baptizing over 400 different therapies and methodologies in humanistic psychology because it's so, it, it seems to work. But it's a right thing done in a wrong way. The goal is to try to get people uh, to depend upon God, but you're using human viewpoint techniques to do it, and that's idolatry. God tells us how to do it. What in the world did people do, did Christians do in the New Testament or Old Testament saints do for um, about 6,000 years until modern psychology came along? They must have missed out on the joyous life of the Christian. They must have missed out on the happiness and stability that God promised believers because we had to have, you know, transpersonal psychology. We had to have all of this self-image information and everything in order to be able to make life work. But Jesus said, no, the solution's simple. You walk by the Spirit, you abide in me, you apply the Word, and God will take care of the rest. It's just that people don't want, they're in too much of a hurry. We don't want to take the time to grow and mature spiritually. So we get so busy with everything else in life that we're cratering on the inside in the pattern of Saul. 
So Paul's, Saul's solution apparently seems right because he wants to do what God says to do, right? I'm going to go seek the face of Yahweh. You hear that from all kinds of denominations that are as far from the Lord as they possibly can be in terms of their understanding of Scripture and their theology. They're humanistic. They're anti-Semitic. They don't believe in literal interpretation. They don't believe in inerrancy and fallibility of Scripture. They don't believe in the uh, substitutionary death of Christ on the cross or that Christ is the only way to heaven. All of these things, but oh, we love God. No, you love your image of God, which is an idolatrous image. It may not be one of wood, metal, or stone, but it is an idolatrous message, uh, an idolatrous God. So Saul's solution is what he's done is he said, I'm going to make God talk to me by going through a necromancer. Well, what he's done is he's changed the God of the Bible who condemns the use of necromancy into a God that will accept it. So now it's not the God of the Bible. So he's doing a right thing in the sense of he's seeking God's direction, but like so many Christians, he just wants to talk the talk without getting the content right. He wants to sound good. We get a dose of this every two years when we have congressional elections and every four years when we have presidential elections and everybody's got to trot out the fact that, oh, I go to church and I was raised in this Christian denomination or that Christian denomination. And it's very rare that you hear somebody give a crisp, clear uh, expression of the gospel. And I'm going to give you two examples. Used to be Congressman Tom Price from Georgia. Now he is the Secretary of Health and Human Services. He's an MD. I was in Washington, D.C. for a congressional briefing with David Barton. I don't know. This was like five or six years ago now, maybe. And um, Tom Price came and talked. And I was really impressed with him. He had a clear statement of the gospel. I'll tell you somebody else who had a clear statement of the gospel. I was at a briefing with the top four or five people in the Texas state government around that same time. And Rick Perry was the governor, and he had a really ambiguous testimony. I think he's a believer, but he doesn't know enough to really clearly express it. But of the of the five people who spoke to us, three people stood out. David Dewhurst was lieutenant governor. He's really solid, and he understood the gospel. Greg Abbott had a really clear understanding of the gospel and a really clear testimony. And then I can't remember his name. He's a young black guy who was on the Texas State Supreme Court. And he was his pastor's son, and he was squared away. That Those kinds of things are important. And then Mike Pence, who's the vice president of, of our country. Some of you may not know this. When I have been told by good sources that when he was a congressman from Indiana and lived up in the D.C. area, he attended Emmanuel uh, Bible Church, uh, which at the time was pastored by a longtime friend of mine named Michael Easley, who later went on to become the president of Moody Bible Institute and was president there for four or five years before health reasons caused him to have to step down and go go back into the into the pastorate. But Mike clearly understands, I mean, Mike easily clearly understands the gospel, and Vice President Mike Pence does too. But a lot of these other guys, Ted Cruz does as well, but a lot of these other guys that you hear trot out something about God and politics and the Bible and everything, 
you're never sure what they really mean. They're just doing what Saul did. They're using the language, using the verbiage. So a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. It's a form of idolatry. So Saul was wrong. A wrong methodology, that is doing things contrary to God's way, is to substitute God's way, I mean our way for God's way. That's what we're doing. We're substituting God's way for our way. We want our way. We want to do it our way. And that's the essence of Saul's original sin. It's stated in, uh, that got him under divine discipline in 1 Samuel 15, 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. That's that word kesem again, which is a broad general term for um, the, using the occult, following uh, into some form of spiritism. Stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. So iniquity and idolatry are in parallelism to witchcraft. So rebellion or disobedience to God, doing a right thing the wrong way is disobedience to God. That is as iniquity and idolatry. Do I need to really break that down for you logically? I'll go over it one more time. If rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft... And iniquity and idolatry are parallel to to witchcraft. Then rebellion is iniquity and idolatry. And if rebellion is iniquity and idolatry, then rebellion, disobedience to God, is idolatry. You're worshiping something else than the God who is in control of everything. And so the issue again is revelation. Uh, Samuel said, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, because you've rejected scripture, not just that there's um, not just the truth of scripture. There's a lot of people who talk the talk. I'm not negative to scripture. Well, do you make decisions, every decision related to your career, your where you live, where you locate, do you make those decisions on the basis of what's best for you in terms of your spiritual walk and your spiritual life? If not, then you're not that positive. You know, when I heard when I was young, when I heard about people who would take, you know, just uproot themselves, and there's some of these people who are in this congregation here tonight who would uproot themselves after college and move from all corners of this country to Houston in order to get good Bible teaching, that's positive volition. You're putting the study of God's word over all other decisions, trusting God to make those decisions, make, bring about the positive results. That's positive volition. But later on, those same people, you know, they just, they lose that courage. Okay, I've seen that happen a lot with believers. And so they're not hostile to the word, but I'm too busy. My, the demands of my job. Well, go get another job. What's more important, your career or the Word of God? If the Word of God is interfering with the study of the Word, then you've got a problem. That's called negative volition. We live in an age today where that doesn't necessarily mean you have to sit in Bible class two or three, four times a week because you can get the Word a lot of different ways. But a lot of people don't do it. If you're getting the word, you're able to do that because there are people who have all kinds of jobs. You can be a police officer. You can be working for the fire department. You can be in the military, and you work all kinds of hours where you're not able to be in church when you should be. Fortunately, we have all kinds of ways to get around that.
So what does Saul do? Verse 7, Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman. He didn't stop there. Notice. (laughs) He said, Find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said, In fact, there's a woman who's a medium at Endor. It always fascinates me that they knew where there was one located. They're supposed to be all out of the land, but they knew exactly where this woman was located. Now, the word translated medium is the Hebrew word ov, which refers to somebody who practices necromancy. That is getting in touch with people who are dead in order to tell the future, in order to uh, make people happy, bring calm to their soul after the death of someone, something like that. The word ov has an interesting background. Etymologically, it is related to a word that referred to the pit, not necessarily sheol, that's your first thought, but just just a pit. Now, one view is, I think this is partially true. Usually scholars come along and it's either A, B, or C, and and maybe it's, it's a combination of them. The idea is that this voice is coming up from the pit. Now, that's a little bit different idea than the idea the rabbis had who translated the Septuagint. They used the Greek word engastromuthos. And engastromuthos, you can hear muth, muthos, okay, uh, and, and gastro, gastrointestinal, uh, that refers to the stomach or mouth, and um, uh, in would be in, in or from the mouth. And so... Um, that was some had something to do with some sort of ventriloquism, but that's an interpretation of of. It's not a translation of of. Okay, so it's better to stick with what the Hebrew says than to talk about an engastromuthos demon, because that's interpreting this as some sort of ventriloquism. Now that's been used in a bogus way to try to say, well, what's really going on here doesn't involve a demonic, doesn't involve the occult, doesn't involve anything like this. The woman is just a, a fraud, and she's, uh, she's like uh, maybe some uh, gypsies or fortune tellers. She's learned ventriloquism, and she's just making it appear as if this voice is coming up from the ground. Uh, that's, that's not the idea there. The idea is that, that, that she, would, she would be talking to her client, Client wants to get in touch with so-and-so who's dead, and then the voice of that dead person, muffled, whispering, making, you know, different kinds of noises is going to come up from the ground, all right? Now, that's a different idea from ventriloquism, but you can see how they could be combined together. In Isaiah 29.4, Isaiah is condemning his generation for their involvement in the occult and seances and trying to, and astrology and all of these things are all part of it. And he says to them in their condemnation, you shall, you shall be brought down, you shall speak out of the ground, your speech shall be low out of the dust. See, what he's talking about is you're going into the grave and your voice is just going to be coming out of the grave. But then he says, 
your voice shall be like a medium's. See, what he's saying is you're going to die and you're going to the grave in the language of those first uh, couple of lines. Then he says your voice is going to be like a medium's. See, that's what the obe does. It comes up from the ground. Out of the ground makes it very clear, the text described, and your speech shall whisper out of the dust. Okay, so the ventriloquist doesn't have to be a someone who can imitate the voice of the dead person. They're just, it, it's just a whisper. It's just a sound, a muttering in some other passages. So that would be the idea here that you would get, Saul is going to go to this necromancer, this medium, and she's going to go through her little incantation and then that her probably she had that she had some kind of connection with a demon and so her familiar spirit is going to cause this voice to come up from the ground up from the grave as it were and that's that's the idea now i showed you this picture last time this is the arab village around the late uh, late 1800s in at indoor now, if you go back and look at Scripture on Endor, it's only mentioned a couple of times earlier. It's mentioned in Joshua 17, 12, and in almost a parallel passage, almost the same words in Judges 1, 27. And in both of those passages, what you have is a real estate description. The tribes are going to get this real estate, and it gives you each tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Issachar, the tribe of Ephraim, etc., etc., and what their borders are going to be and what the towns and villages are that are going to be part of their possession. And Manasseh gets an area that is around that, that southeast end of the uh, valley of, of Esdralon there, the, the Jezreel Valley. And But the text says that Manasseh was unable to drive out the Canaanites. By that time, they were compromising with the Canaanites. We don't want to really kill them all. We're a little squeamish. We don't like to kill the babies. We just can't really do what God said to do. That's just another form of idolatry. And so what happens is they let the Canaanites live. And because they let the Canaanites live, they began to assimilate with the Canaanites. And Endor was still a Canaanite village practicing all the pagan uh, arts and all the pagan religions that the Canaanites had. By the way, there was a story that came out this last week that somebody has done DNA studies on the ancient Canaanites and uh, from the graves, etc., and they've determined that the modern ancestors, the modern descendants of the ancient Canaanites were, uh, are, are the Lebanese, okay? Which makes sense, because they, they were, of this all, all through that area, you had the same basic mix, mix of people. But at least in the article I read, it, it makes this point, or tries to make this point that, well, the Jews were supposed to kill them all. But if they've got survivors, they didn't kill them all. And the implication is, well, the Bible's wrong. No, the Bible's very clear. They didn't kill them all. They were supposed to kill them all, but the reason you have the modern Lebanese today as descendants from the ancient Canaanites is because, like here at Endor with Manasseh and the other tribes, they didn't kill them all. And so they survived, and, you know, their DNA 
continued down through the century. Just a side note on daily news. So we find this woman, and in this episode, we have a commentary in Scripture in First Chronicles. Now, you ought to write this down in your margin of your Bible next to this event, so the next time you're reading through it, you can look at it. A lot of times when you have Scripture, like in my Bible, you have a, a cross-references there, and it lists, lists this passage, so you can circle it or uh, underline it or something. But we get a perspective. Now, remember, Chronicles is written after the return from, from the Babylonian captivity. The purpose the Chronicles are written is to re-motivate the Israelites to understand who they are, their, their covenant background with, um, with God, and what God expects of them. So it's, it's all positive and it focuses on Judah. So in 1 Corinthians, or 1 Chronicles 10.13, we read, So Saul died for his unfaithfulness. Now, that should not be translated because he was an unbeliever. It's for his unfaithfulness. He wasn't faithful to God, which he had committed against the Lord. Two things. First, because he did not keep the word of the Lord. That's the command to kill the Amalekites. That's in 1 Samuel 15. And also because he consulted a medium for guidance. That's at the end of his life. Those are the bookends, Okay. So that he's this verse brackets the the period of Saul's disobedience and divine uh, divine discipline. And then it says, "But he did not inquire of the Lord." Now wait a minute. First Samuel twenty eight it says Saul is trying to hear God, but he's doing it the right way. So the divine commentary is no, he's not inquiring of God. He's just saying that he is. And that's not inquiring. There are a lot of people, as I said earlier, there are a lot of people who want to talk the talk. I want to go to church. I want to have a relationship with God. But they want to have that relationship on their terms and not on God's terms. They want to do it their way instead of God's way. And that's idolatry. And that is exactly why Saul comes under divine discipline. So verse 14 says, but he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he killed him. It's the sin unto death. We'll talk about that when we get to the end of First Samuel. Uh, Therefore, he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Now, about this, Alfred Adersheim wrote in his large work called Bible History. Now, Adersheim is somebody every Christian ought to know about. Adersheim was not a rabbi, but he was a trained Orthodox Jew from Eastern Europe, in the mid uh, 19th century, he wrote a massive book. I'm not kidding. It's got to be three inches wide at least, called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. He also wrote a book on the temple. We have all, I think we have all these books back in, in the library. He also wrote a book on the temple, and he wrote a book on the, on the temple services. So he, he, he's done a masterful job bringing all of his Jewish knowledge. In fact, until recent work that Arnold Fruchtenbaum has done, Adersheim was the go-to guy. There are others, but Adersheim was the go-to guy for understanding Jewish backgrounds to the, to the gospel. Uh, by the way, if uh, I meant to make this announcement earlier. We, we contribute 
uh, substantially to Chafer Seminary. For churches that contribute beyond a certain amount, members of that church can take up to two courses a semester tuition-free uh, from Chafer Seminary. One of those courses is, if some of you are looking surprised, we sent the email out a couple of weeks ago. Um, one of those courses is, is a course, some of you heard it when Arnold was here, is Arnold's cor course on uh, uh, Jesus the Messiah, the life of the Jewish, Je Jesus the life of the Jewish Messiah, which is very good. I'm the proctor for that particular course. But if you want to take it for credit, that's what you do. You can take it uh, that way. And Arnold has now, several people on his staff have been working. They've taken the transcripts from that course and from other times Arnold has taught this, and they have researched it in incredible detail. And he is, they're coming out with a four-volume work on, uh, uh, I think, Jesus the Jewish Messiah, something like that. And you can get volumes one, two, and three now. Four comes out, I think, by Christmas. And they are tremendous. Uh, Arnold taught something on John 1. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the, what? Word. In the beginning was the Word. And everybody, from me to whomever you listen to, always talks about how logos is a Greek concept, and this is something that John, who last half of his life is ministering in Ephesus, and so that he's talking to a Greek audience. But Arnold came along and said, no, there's an Aramaic doctrine that developed in the intertestamental period that talked about the manifestation of God in, the, in rabbinical theology in the intertestamental period was called the Memra. Memra is the Aramaic word for word. And that according to this intertestamental period, there are certain characteristics of the Memra, all of which are listed in John 1, 1 through 12. And he said that, and I'd never heard this before, that Memra was, that's the background for what John's talking about. It's not Greek philosophy or any of this other stuff. It's Jewish theology from the intertestamental period. And I did a lot of research, and I couldn't find squat on Memra. Well, in this new edition that, uh, on the life of the Messiah that, that Arnold had, he's got 70 documented, heavily footnoted pages on the Memra. Just wait till I get back to John 1 again. We'll be there forever. It, it, it's fabulous. It is so well documented, and it has footnotes in a number of scholarly articles that were only published in the last maybe four, five, six years ago, which was since he was here and taught that. So a lot of this information is newly discovered scholarly information. It's not just Arnold saying this. There's a lot of people who are rediscovering this and are publishing about it. So it just, it, it's just fascinating. But Adersheim is in that great tradition of Jewish converts to Christianity who help us understand the Jewish background. So what he says is, as the event proved, Saul did not really inquire of the Lord. He's talking like it is. He said he did not really inquire of the Lord in the sense of seeking directions from him or of being willing to be guided by it. Rather did he, if we may so express it, wish to use the Lord as the means by which to obtain his object. Isn't that just like most of us? We want to use God for our purposes. We constantly want to manipulate him and use him 
But that's exactly what Saul's doing. Yes, I'm seeking Yahweh. No, I just want confirmation or validation for whatever it is I want to do. And so uh, Edersheim says, but that was essentially the heathen view. It's pure paganism. It differed only in detail, not in principle, from the inquiry of a familiar spirit to which he afterwards resorted. That's the same thing I've been saying. Everything here is just some form of idolatry. So then we read, then the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done. She wants to protect herself. She's not going to fess up to the fact that she's a medium because she may be, this may be some undercover uh, narco coming in here who's going to bust her. So she says, you know Saul, what Saul has done. He's cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? You're just here to entrap me. And in verse 10, Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, isn't that in religious people always swear by God? Okay, God's going to validate my, my lie here. This is what it means to take the Lord's name in vain, not saying God something or Jesus something or Lord something. It's saying, this is what the Lord said, and what follows is not what the Lord said. That is attaching Yahweh's name to something bogus. Okay, that's what taking the Lord's name in vain is. It means to make it empty. So he says, as Yahweh lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Now what happens? Verse 11. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? So she's convinced by, the, by his oath. So that was pretty simple for her. She's pretty gullible. And he said, bring up Samuel for me. Now I want you to watch what I've got marked on the text there. Most Bibles will translate it when the woman saw Samuel, as if time goes by between the end of verse 11 and Saul said, Saul's statement, call up Samuel for me, and Samuel's appearance. There's no when in the Greek text. That's an interpretive conclusion. It should simply be translated and. He said, bring up Samuel for me. And the woman saw Samuel. I mean, it happens like that. There's no intervening thing. She doesn't go through her little mumbo jumbo. She doesn't do her incantation. She doesn't light her incense candles and close her eyes and wave her hands over the table or anything like that to somehow bring Samuel up. Because God wants to make it clear that he brought Samuel up right then. As soon as David, as soon as Saul said, I want to see Samuel. There he was. The woman had nothing to do with it. She's not going into any of her things. Now, this is something that confuses a lot of people when they read this story. They say, well, it seems like God's using necromancy. No, God's not using necromancy. Necromancy is fraudulent and it's demonic. God is breaking the norm and bringing Samuel back from the dead. Well, he never does that. I did it one other time. Let me see. Matthew. Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Wow. How about that? So God is breaking the norm here in order to confirm Saul in his disobedience and to highlight um, highlight his spiritual uh, spiritual rebellion here. So... We should read this. He said, bring up Samuel for me. And the woman saw Samuel. It was instant. The text indicates no pause whatsoever. And as soon as it happened, 
the woman knows this is Saul. I mean, this is not what she expected. She expected to go through the standard operating procedure. She would go through her little incantations and light the incense and everything else, and suddenly uh, a voice, disembodied voice, would come up from the ground. But she sees him. She sees Samuel. This totally breaks pattern, and she knows something is radically different, and it scares her. She shrieks. She cries out with a loud voice. She just shrieks. This is Samuel. She's scared to death, and now she knows she's busted. Why have you deceived me, for you are Saul? Now, why does God change his modus operandi here? Why does God do this differently? Well, I think there are basically three reasons. First of all, he is God multitasks. You've heard me say that many times. So what God is going to do is use Saul's disobedience to be the instrument of the announcement of his condemnation. He's going to use this act of disobedience to announce, this is it, Saul. It's over with. Tomorrow, you're dead. And you lose the kingdom, and it goes to David. Second thing, he's showing that God is superior to the paganism of all this demonism. God's in control through this whole episode. This woman is just there and getting scared to death. Third thing is that it makes it clear that there is a life after death. This is Samuel. He does come back from the grave. He's not happy. He's rather grumpy with Saul. Why have you called me back? See, if, if the Bible's right, he's in a place of bliss and happiness. He is in Abraham's bosom. Now he comes back into the devil's corrupt world. He's not happy. You wouldn't be happy. I wouldn't be happy. Once I get out of here, I don't want to come back. Not until I'm in a resurrection body with the Lord. So Samuel isn't real happy with what's going on, but this shows us there is an afterlife, and it shows us that Saul was saved because he's going to say tomorrow you're going to be with me. Now, I've heard people try to get around this, and they say, well, all he's saying is you're going to be in Sheol like I'm in Sheol. That isn't what he said. He said you're going to be with me. Now, if you go look at Luke chapter 16, which is the story of Lazarus and the rich man, it's not a parable, it's a story. But if you go look at that uh, episode, when Lazarus dies, he goes to Abraham's bosom. When the rich man dies, he goes to torments. There is a great gulf fixed. There is no way you can stretch the English language or the Greek language or the Hebrew language to say that that Lazarus is with the rich man. They are in two different locations. They are not with each other. Samuel isn't saying today you will be with me in Sheol. We're both going to be in the afterlife. He says you're going to be you and your sons will be with me tomorrow. And that implies that they're going to be together and they're going to be in the same place. They're both going to be in uh, paradise or in Abraham's bosom the next day, not in not one of them in a place of torments and the other somewhere else. They're going to be together. So it makes it very, very clear that there's a future state and an afterlife. Now, there's a number of different views that have come up over the years. I'll just kind of outline them basically. 
One of them is that the medium, and the, all of this is reading something into the text, but these are out there in Christian commentaries going back, you know, in some cases, three or 400 years, that the medium was using some sort of narcotic or other means of self-hypnosis to enter into an ecstatic state in which she would allow a demon to speak through her, Okay. She's, going to, she's using something, either self-hypnosis, narcotics. She's going to go in this altered state of consciousness. There are several problems with this. A couple of minor problems are this wouldn't co- produce the kind of orderly conversation recorded in Scripture. Second, she, if she goes into this ecstatic state, she would expect some kind, some, a vision and something to appear. The fact that she shrieks shows that what's happening isn't the normal modus operandi. Uh, She would not have had a conversation uh, with Saul about this. Also, that God, the two biggest problems are, number one, God would not use pagan means to bring about uh, the appearance of Samuel. He's not going to use the means of necromancy, demonism, to bring about the appearance of of, of Samuel. And then the the last thing, which goes for the critical, it doesn't fit just a normal reading of the text. The text reads, this is Samuel. And Saul understands that it's Samuel. He has confirmatory evidence that it's Samuel. And he has a conversation with Samuel. And Samuel doesn't do anything about answering his question. He just says it's the same thing. God told you that he was going to take the kingdom from you and he was going to take your life. And this is what God's doing. And it's going to come to pass tomorrow and you're going to be with me. It's very, very clear. And so people try to read these other things into the passage. Another erroneous interpretation is the idea that this is a satanic interpretation uh, or, yeah, a, a satanic impersonation that Satan or a demon is impersonating Samuel. But that didn't fit what the text says either. They're having their conversation and Samuel is repeating verbatim what he said just about, just about verbatim what he said in 1 Samuel 15. Second problem is that he says exactly what's going to happen the next day. You and your sons are going to be killed. The Philistines are going to defeat you, and you're going to be with me. Now, that, that's important for a couple of reasons. Number one, if the witch is just bogus and she's a fraud, that's not the kind of feel-good thing that, that a medium tells people because they're not going to come back. You know, if they're paying you money to find out about the future and the future is really bad news, you don't want to go back to that person again. So uh, you're not going to show up, especially if you're going to be dead. This is not good news. So um, and then secondly, Satan, if it's satanically inspired, Satan can't tell the future. So all he does is generalizations. So it's not a satanic impersonation. Uh, it's not some kind of fraud or the, the, the woman's not a trickster. She's not a ventriloquist. Something truly supernatural is happening here. God is intervening and reaffirming the judgment that he's already announced on, um, on Saul. Now, another thing that's interesting is outside of the Bible, so it doesn't have the same authority as the Scripture, but I think that the breadth of this is interesting. It tells us a lot about the interpretation of this among the uh, rabbis and the Jewish leaders. 
in the apocryphal book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus, okay, that's part of the apocrypha, which fits in the intertestamental period. So this is before Jesus. This is between Malachi and Jesus. Okay, so, so they are writing about and explaining about this event. And in Ecclesiasticus 16.20, it says of Samuel that, quote, after his death he prophesied and showed the king his end. So Ecclesiasticus, as a non-canonical book, interprets this as the literal appearance of Samuel back from the grave. The Septuagint, the, the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek by rabbis during the intertestamental period, also 2nd century B.C., adds a line to the verse we looked at earlier, 1 Chronicles 10.13, and they added, Saul asked counsel of her that had a familiar spirit to inquire of her, and Samuel made answer to him. So the Septuagint understanding of those rabbis who translate is that Samuel came back from the dead. And then Josephus, who writes around A.D. 90 A.D. in his Antiquities, says that it was Samuel who appeared and prophesied to Saul. So there's three non-canonical, extra-biblical sources from that tell us what the uh, Jewish understanding of this verse was uh, during this broad period from about 250 to 300 B.C. up to the 100 A.D. That's its testimony. So that's the, that's the view there. So to go against this just is, I think there's a lot of presuppositions that are false and a lot of legalism that's false, and I think it's a lot of problems. So when Samuel appears, uh, Saul tries to comfort the woman and says, don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman says, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. She's never seen this before in her life. So he said to her, what's his form? She says, an old man coming up. He's covered with a mantle. It's a meal in the Hebrew. It's a, the robe, the official robe of a, of a prophet. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and now he bows down. Now, he doesn't stay down. Some people say, well, he stays down, so he never really looks at Samuel, so he could have been deceived. It was typical in the ancient world, some, somebody you revere, you bow down, but you come back up. Uh, he bows down, and then Samuel says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? He's edgy. Read that tone into that. Say, why am I back here on this earth? I'm gone. I'm in paradise. What in the world do you want? And Saul says, well, I'm deeply distressed because the Philistines war against me. God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. What arrogance on the part of Saul. Samuel straightens him out. He says, so why are you asking me, seeing that the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? The New Testament, quoting from Proverbs, says that God makes war or is hostile to the arrogant. What is Saul's sin? He's dis he has disobeyed God. He is arrogant. It's witchcraft. And so God has become your enemy. God's against you. He's not going to talk to you. I'm not going to go talk to God about talking to you. That's above my pay grade. That's what Samuel's saying. 
What are you coming to me? And he repeats what has happened. The Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. That's right out of 1 Samuel 15. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Now it's coming to pass. And then he says, moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you. So this tells me that not only, this isn't just about Saul. This is about all of Israel at this time under his leadership is pagan. They've compromised. And God is bringing divine discipline against uh, Israel. And so they are going to have a tremendous defeat here at Mount Gilboa. This is a terrible defeat. But God is going to bring blessing out of cursing. And through David, he is going to deliver them from the oppression of the Philistines and build the greatest kingdom that Israel had in the ancient world. And then uh, Samuel says, Tomorrow you and your sons will be in me, with me. That's the Hebrew word, with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. So all these statements are to be taken as true. Well, Saul just reacts in depression and despair. He falls on the ground. He just about passes out. He's almost catatonic. He's in a state of panic. There's no strength in him. And then we find out that he's been so worried he hasn't eaten all day or all night. So his blood sugar is really low, and he's on the verge of passing out. And the woman takes compassion on him. This is really interesting. She came to him saw that he was severely troubled and said, look, your maidservants obeyed your voice. I put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Please he listen to me now and let me bring you some bread and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. Now, that's more of a euphemism. She's going to prepare him a incredible meal. She takes a fatted calf. Now, one of the translators said this is a stalled calf. S-T-A-L-L-E-D, a calf that's been kept inside the house. Remember, we've talked about this in the ancient world. They would have a special place, sort of like, a, like a, an indoor garage, where they would bring the prized animals, and they would keep a calf there and feed them until it was ready to be slaughtered and eaten. So she's going to take this calf from the stall, this fatted calf, and she's going to fix dinner. How long do you think that would take? She's got to kill it, slaughter it, skin it, butcher it, and build a fire and cook it. That takes more than 30 or 40 minutes. It takes more than two minutes in a microwave just heating it up, okay? It takes a while. Saul and his two bodyguards are going to be there most of the night, and he's going to get a great meal. So while the meat's cooking, she takes flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. Now, that's because they're in a hurry, so it doesn't have time for the bread to rise, just like on the first night of Passover when God said, don't leaven the bread. Now, it was going to have a symbolic value, but he says, don't leaven the bread because you're in a hurry. You just want to cook it, and we're going to get ready to go. So verse 25, she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. 
Okay, now his story is not picked up until uh, we get to chapter, uh, chapter 31. In the intervening period, we go back to David. We've already talked about chapter 29 in the first part of 30, but I want to go back and pick up the rest of 30 when we head into 31 for a couple of different reasons. So we'll come back and wrap up David and then pull this together uh, at the end. The last chapter is rather, rather short. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, Father, thank you for this time to study these things tonight and to be reminded that you are in control and that ultimately reality is you're the creator, we're the creature. We're living out your plan, your purpose. This is your history. Our role is to orient to you. Our role is not get to get you to orient to us. Trying to get you to orient to our plans, our wishes, our hopes, our dreams is idolatry. We need to learn not to be like Saul, but to be like David, to submit to you and to be willing to follow your lead and depend exclusively on you for everything in life. Father, we pray that you'll challenge us with what we've learned tonight. In Christ's name, amen.